Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 8, verse 51 And my goal today is to cover verses 51 to 59, and with that, we'll complete our study of John chapter 8. And the title of the message this morning is Some Breathtaking Claims of Jesus Christ. Some Breathtaking Claims of Jesus Christ. About 38 years ago, I believe it was, I was having a conversation with a Christian friend of mine in Indiana. And during that conversation, I was waxing eloquent about some theological matter of some importance. And as I droned on and on about that topic, I noticed that this friend of mine was staring right into my face with rapt attention. Encouraged by his attentiveness, I continued talking. And when I finished my brilliant discourse, he opened his mouth to respond to what I had said. I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting him to say to me, but I think I was hoping he would maybe express amazement and appreciation for the insight that I had just shared with him. But instead, with his eyes still fixed on my face, he said to me, and I quote, man, Milton, you really need to trim your nose hairs. (laughs) It's not quite what I was hoping for uh, from this brother, but you will be very happy to know that the man who spoke those immortal words to me 38 years ago is in our service this morning. Uh, His name is Bill Gannon, and he is here today with his wife, Tammy, visiting from Indiana, and they're both very dear friends. In fact, can we have you guys stand? Let's welcome them. I actually begin on this note, not just to welcome them, uh, but to say that not everything that you and I say in our conversations gets the response that we might wish for, right? But good comes even from those unflattering, unexpected responses. Bill's response to me on that day was one of many, many occasions when God has used him to keep me from taking myself too seriously. And I kid you not, every single Sunday morning before I come to church and preach, Uh, To you all, I stand in front of a mirror with a small pair of scissors, and I give heed to the words that Bill Gannon spoke to me 38 years ago, and you all have Bill Gannon to thank for that. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to find himself speaking to some men who are truly giving him their rapt attention. But when they respond to him, they respond to him in ways that are stunning in their disrespect. But good will come out of their responses or as a result of their responses because what they say to Jesus will serve as the catalyst for some of the most audacious claims that Jesus ever made about himself, providing for us some of the clearest revelations of his deity that's found anywhere in the gospel accounts. And to appreciate what happens in our text today, I want to just take a little bit of time to review what has happened up to this point where we're going to be picking up in the narrative uh, today Remember, guys, that Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple. He has been engaging with the Jewish religious leaders and speaking truth 
uh, to them. And wonderfully, we saw in verse 30 how many came to believe in Jesus in response to the things that they heard Jesus say. And among the many, evidently, were some among the Jewish leaders. And then in verse 31, we saw how Jesus sought to encourage the Jewish leaders who had believed in him, saying to them in verses 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And then in verse 33, we saw how the non-believing Jewish leaders get all huffy at what Jesus has just said to their believing colleagues, and they say to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Observe Jesus' response in verse 34 and following. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He then says to these unbelieving Jews in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. And we saw last Sunday that the vibe here is, at least we were not born of fornication like you were, Jesus. They say, we have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. What's remarkable to me in this exchange that we studied last Sunday is that Jesus never flies off the handle and loses his temper and says something reckless to these men, nor does he get into a fist fight with these men because they talk smack about his mom and his father and even insulted him as a demon-possessed Samaritan. Instead, Jesus keeps his head about him and speaks nothing but rock-solid truth to these men who are being so disrespectful to him. And another thing to appreciate is how Jesus doesn't wilt under the withering criticism of these men, and neither does he back down. He stands his ground, and he speaks truth to these men 
even though he knows that what he's saying to them is only going to make them angrier and make them hate him even more. And this is definitely true in our text that we'll be looking at today where Jesus actually seems to grow larger and larger in this conversation as he makes a series of breathtaking claims about himself that shed tremendous light on who he is. It seems that just when Jesus sees that these men are losing their minds over one thing that he has just said or told them about himself, he tells them yet another thing about himself that leaves them even more upset. And as we look at this passage today, the way we'll break down our study of this text is we'll observe five breathtaking claims Five breathtaking claims that Jesus makes before a hostile audience. And the first of these claims, let's word it this way, is this. The person, Jesus says, who keeps my word will never see death. The person who keeps my word will never see death. Observe what Jesus says to these men in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You could even translate this, he will never, ever see death. As we touched on last week, it is a remarkable mercy that Jesus would speak these words to these men who despise him. If only they had the heart to see and appreciate his mercy here. Jesus could have breathed fire from his mouth at this moment and incinerated these men for how they have dishonored him up to this point of the conversation. But instead, he holds out this wonderful word of promise for these men. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, In other words, what I'm about to say is absolutely true, and I'm speaking this truth to you men in particular and for your benefit. And here's his promise. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is a staggering promise that is very broad in its scope. The fact that Jesus uses the word anyone shows that this promise is held out to anyone in the world including you and me, and including these men who up to this point have been so nasty to Jesus. If anyone keeps my word, Jesus says, he will never see death. What is his word? Ultimately, it's every word that Jesus ever spoke that we have recorded for us in the gospel accounts. And more broadly, I think we can say it includes everything said in all of the scripture, Old Testament and the New Testament, which ultimately is God's revelation about Jesus, so long as we understand it as such. All of the Bible is his word. And Jesus is saying here, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John Calvin understands the word keeps here as speaking of keeping something as a precious treasure and then orienting your life around that treasure and drawing lavishly from that treasure. D.A. Carson says that the person who keeps Christ's word is someone who believes it, who cleaves to it, obeys it, and lives by it. This kind of keeping of Christ's word would amount to the opposite of what these men in this conversation in John 8 are doing with Jesus' word. They were hating Jesus' word and arguing against his word and rejecting his word rather than keeping his word. And Jesus is saying to these men, if any one of you would stop resisting my word and become a keeper of my word, then you will never ever see death. What a promise. The way Jesus words this promise is quite bold, and it even stretches our understanding of 
of the degree to which this promise can actually be fulfilled. Is Jesus saying here that the keeper of his word will never die physically? Well, we're actually blessed to have something later in John that Jesus says to Martha in John chapter 11. You can write this reference down, John 11, 25 and 26, that gives us insight into what he is thinking here in his statement in John 8. In that later passage in John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What his language in John 11 indicates is that when Jesus speaks about people never dying, he's not promising that they will never die physically, but he is talking about them having a life that physical death cannot extinguish. In part, Jesus is saying that the keeper of his word will never experience spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. And the second death that the book of Revelation speaks about is eternal separation from God's love in the lake of fire. So what Jesus is saying here in John 8 is that the person who keeps his word will never experience this spiritual and eternal death. They will never be separated from God's love ever and they will never experience even the smallest blast of heat from the lake of fire. And one day, God will even raise their physical bodies from the earth so that they will live in an embodied existence forever with Christ. Death will not have the last word. As we sang this morning, out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, that the grave has no claim on me. What you boasted in when you sang that song, our living hope this morning is what Jesus is promising here. This is what Jesus is speaking of when he says that the person who keeps his word will never see death. And in making this claim here in John 8, Jesus is essentially claiming to be greater than death itself, more powerful than death. Unfortunately, Jesus' listeners are only thinking of physical death, and they understand Jesus to be promising that anyone who keeps his word will never experience physical death of any sort. So rather than asking Jesus for some clarification of his promise, they pounce on him. And observe how they respond in verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. And then they ask Jesus two questions in verse 53. They say, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? We know from the book of Genesis that Abraham died at the age of 175, and we know that all the prophets died as well, with the exception of Elijah, and we could probably include Enoch in that, because we're told in Jude 14 that Enoch prophesied, so if we consider him a prophet, then Elijah and Enoch are two prophets that did not die, but all the others did, including Abraham. So when these religious leaders hear Jesus promise in verse 51 that the person who keeps his word will never die, they're understanding Jesus to be claiming to be someone greater than Abraham who died along with all the other prophets. And then they ask Jesus, whom do you make yourself out to be? And in asking this question, they're not so much asking Jesus who he actually is. They think they've got that already figured out. They're asking him who he's making himself out to be. 
you could paraphrase their question as, who do you think you are? Or who are you pretending yourself to be? Well, Jesus would love to answer that question, which leads us to the second breathtaking claim that he makes before this hostile audience. And actually, everything he says after this is his reply to that question, but it comes in layers. And so the second claim that Jesus makes is this, God the Father glorifies me. God the Father glorifies me. Observe Jesus' response in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Now, stop right there for a second. What Jesus is saying here is true for all of us, even in normal human relationships. If you're applying for a job, you can brag all you want about yourself. But what people considering hiring you really want to know is, what do other people say about you? What do your former colleagues and bosses say about you, right? So part of what Jesus is saying here is this. If I'm, you know, as you listen to me, I'm not making myself out to be anything, If I glorify myself and all you had to go on was my testimony, my glory would be nothing. And then Jesus says, look at the text, it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Jesus is saying, when I speak about myself, I'm only speaking the words that my father wants me to speak. And I am only speaking words that the Father is backing up with his own testimony about me through the miracles that he has given me to perform and through the testimony of John the Baptist whom he sent and through the Old Testament scriptures that he inspired which point to me and speak about me and validate everything that I am saying. This is essentially what Jesus is saying here, but Let's not fail to appreciate how staggering this claim actually is when he says, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. No one in the history of the world has ever spoken the way Jesus can speak and does speak here. Throughout the Old Testament, it is God alone who is to be glorified, right? In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And yet here is Jesus saying, it is my father who glorifies me. Jesus is standing before these men and he's saying, God is my father and God glorifies me. This is an audacious claim that would have sounded like the height of arrogant blasphemy to the religious leaders that are listening to Jesus right now. But it raises a question, that is, why would God the Father glorify Jesus in the way Jesus is speaking about here? Well, we would say, well, obviously, because Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, the great I Am. He's God himself. But for the moment, Jesus doesn't go there. Instead, he declares another truth about himself for these men to digest, something about himself that serves to explain why God the Father would delight to glorify him. And this leads us to the third breathtaking claim that Jesus makes before a hostile audience. Number three, I know God. I know God the Father and keep his word. I know God the Father, and keep his word. These men claim to know God the Father, but in verse 55, Jesus says, and you have not come to know him, but I know him. To appreciate what Jesus says here, you should 
Remember that Jesus is responding to the question that these men asked him back in verse 53 when they asked him, who do you make yourself out to be? And what Jesus is saying here in verse 55 is his answer to that question. He's saying, I want you to know who I am making myself out to be. I am someone who knows God the Father and who keeps his word. In part, Jesus, in giving this reply, is throwing these men's question back on them, kind of implying the real question is, who do you men make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? You men act like you know God? You don't, but I do. Of all the things, when I look at this claim that Jesus makes, what strikes me is that of all the things that he could have said about himself, I love the fact that this is what he chooses to focus on here. Yes, Jesus is many other things. He's the light of the world. He's the son of God, the son of man, the great I am. He is God himself and many other things. But the thing about himself that he's happiest about and wants to focus on first here is simply that he knows the father. Write down this reference in Jeremiah 9 verses 23 In 24, God says, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And Jesus is modeling this spirit perfectly in making his boast here in the fact that he knows God. He knows God the Father. In fact, observe what he says to them in verse 55. He says, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. (laughs) What a blazing hot thing for Jesus to say, right? Jesus is standing before these men who want to kill him and they have told him that they think he's demon-possessed, and he basically says to them, if I were to stand right here before you men and tell you that I don't know the Father, you guys would like that. You would want me to say something like that, but me saying something like that and telling you what you would want to hear would simply make me a liar just like you. So let me say it again, Jesus says at the end of verse 55, I do know him and keep his word. In other words, I know the Father and I treasure his word. I orient my life around his word as my treasure and I make sure I speak only his word to you. And I know him in a personal, experiential manner and in a way that you men cannot even begin to fathom. And I will not minimize that truth about myself in order to make myself more palatable to you men. So I'm sure what Jesus has just said here leaves these men on their heels with a whole lot to digest, but Jesus is not finished. Remember that the men that Jesus is talking to had brought up Abraham earlier, claiming to be Abraham's offspring and claiming Abraham as their father. And in verse 52, these men had asked Jesus, are you greater than Abraham? Well, Jesus would very much like to address that question and say some things about his personal connection to Abraham. And this leads us to the fourth breathtaking claim that Jesus makes before this hostile audience. Number four, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham saw my day and was glad. Jesus says to them in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced, and you could actually translate this, rejoiced exceedingly to see my day And he saw it and was glad. 
A question that we would ask upon hearing these words from Jesus is when did Abraham see Jesus' day and rejoice? Some writers point to Genesis 15, where God spoke to Abraham and said, one who will come from your own body will be your heir. And God told him that Abraham's descendants would be as the stars of heaven. Perhaps Abraham understood those promises in a way that included his ultimate messianic heir who would come from his body ultimately in a future day. And there was actually a first century Jewish rabbi, Akiba ben Yosef, who argued that it was on this occasion in Genesis 15 when, and I quote, God disclosed to Abraham the secrets of the age to come. Other writers point to the naming of Abraham's son, Isaac, which means laughter. The Jewish targums of the first century actually understand the word Isaac to mean rejoicing, perhaps suggesting that the naming of Isaac was in itself an expression of Abraham and Sarah's rejoicing at the messianic future that they could see was coming. There's also an oddly worded passage in Genesis 24.1. You can write that reference down where our translation, the New American Standard, says Abraham was advanced in age. The Hebrew of that statement literally reads, Abraham had gone into the days. Abraham had gone into the days. And there were ancient rabbis who took this expression to mean that God took Abraham into the future and allowed him to see the age to come. This is almost certainly a fanciful interpretation of Genesis 24.1. I am not advocating it at all, but I share it to at least show that among the ancient rabbis, there was a tradition that Abraham saw the age of the Messiah. Personally, I think the clearest moment when Abraham was able to look into the future and see Christ's day in the Genesis account was in Genesis chapter 22, when, as many of you know, God told Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on that mountain. And you will recall that on the way, Isaac asked his dad what they're going to be sacrificing. And Abraham replied to Isaac saying, and I quote, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That's in Genesis 22, 8. And when Abraham arrives at the place of sacrifice on Mount Moriah, he proceeds to slay Isaac when an angel of the Lord stops him. And it was then that Abraham turned and found a ram a ram in the thicket, and he offered that ram as a sacrifice instead of Isaac, which leaves us, the reader of Genesis 22, still asking the question, where is the lamb that Abraham said that God would provide for that offering? Abraham promised a lamb, but ended up with a ram, where is the lamb that Abraham promised Isaac that God would provide? And if you're reading through the rest of the Old Testament, you should still be asking that question. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? You read Isaiah 53 and learn about the coming Messiah, that he would be like a lamb to the slaughter. And you would pay close attention to that. And then your heart should leap for joy in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John wants us to understand 
that John the Baptist is saying, this is the lamb. This is the promise lamb that God is providing to take away the sins of the world. Back in Genesis 22, verse 14, after Abraham offered the ram as an offering in the place of his son, the text says, and Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And then Moses says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The Hebrew of the name the Lord will provide is Yahweh Yireh, which literally means Yahweh will see or Yahweh will see to it in the sense of providing. And we should note that Abraham is not naming this place the Lord provided past tense, but the Lord will provide. This means that Abraham is not so much naming this place after God's provision of a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. He's naming the place the Lord will provide in order to point to the future, to the fact that this will be the location where God in the future will provide the lamb for a sacrifice. In other words, Abraham is speaking prophetically here And Moses then tells us in Genesis 22, 14, that all the way up to Moses' day, people were still pointing to that mountain and saying, in the mount of Yahweh, it will be seen or it will be provided. And by the way, that very mountain that Abraham gave this name is the very mount where the Jerusalem temple stood which is exactly where Jesus is standing at this very moment in John 8. All of this to say that Genesis 22 is clearly one of those moments. It's perhaps not the only, but one of those moments when Abraham is seeing Christ's day and he's rejoicing over the amazing privilege that is his to visit the very spot of God's future provision of the Lamb. It seems that Abraham now realizes why God had him travel this three-day journey and come to this particular place. And with this name, the Lord will provide, Abraham is saying to us all, X marks the spot. Keep your eyes right here. The Lord will provide the lamb for a sacrifice right here in this place. Not to prolong this thought, but I can't let this go. Even more specifically, on that occasion in Genesis 22, God begins to speak some lavish promises to Abraham. And in Genesis 22:17, God says to Abraham, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And then literally, this is how the Hebrew reads, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. His singular enemies. The word seed is one of those words like our English word fish, whether it's we mean it singular or plural It always shows up in the singular form, but write this down, Galatians 3.16. The Apostle Paul points out that God is speaking of seed singular here, and the Hebrew bears this out. Unfortunately, not every English translation captures this, but the English Standard Version and the Legacy Standard Bible and the King James Version and Young's literal translation have God saying to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And if you look in the Hebrew text, it's his, not their. 
And then God goes on to speak of this singular seed in the next verse and says in Genesis 22:18, in your seed, in your singular seed or offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So this moment here on Mount Moriah is clearly a moment of great prophetic insight for Abraham where Abraham is seeing and he's realizing that the Lord will provide a lamb for the offering, but where he's also told that this particular one, this singular seed will prevail somehow and possess the gate of his enemies. And here in John 8, our passage for this morning, Jesus is right now standing in the temple on this very mountain where Abraham was, talking about how Abraham saw his day and was glad. Jesus was with Abraham in that moment back in Genesis 22. In fact, Jesus was the angel of the Lord who spoke these words of promise to Abraham, allowing him to see into the future of his coming day. And here in John 8, Jesus speaks to these men and says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Jesus speaks these words as if he was present and actually witnessed Abraham doing this rejoicing. So as you might imagine, the Jews, hearing what Jesus has just said here in John 8, are beside themselves with astonishment that Jesus would be so brazen as to talk like he personally witnessed Abraham seeing his day and rejoicing. To them, it sure seems like Jesus is talking like he and Abraham were contemporaries of one another, which makes absolutely no sense to them at all, given the fact that Abraham lived and died 2,000 years prior. So observe their response in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Their language here doesn't mean that Jesus was even close to 50 years of age they're simply throwing in some extra years for good measure, and they're saying to Jesus, you clearly aren't even 50 years of age, and you talk like you've seen Abraham? Well, Jesus has an answer for them, and it is the ultimate truth bomb. And this leads us to the fifth and final breathtaking claim that Jesus makes before this hostile audience, just when it seems that these men have had all they could take of revelation about Jesus, he gives them yet one more revelation about himself. And it's the greatest truth of all. And let's word it this way. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Observe Jesus' response in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is one of the greatest statements, I think, that Jesus ever made, and there's no getting around his meaning. These men challenged Jesus for suggesting that he and Abraham were contemporaries of one another, and on one level, Jesus is saying here, actually, it's not quite accurate before Abraham was born, I was already around. I'm even older than Abraham. But even more remarkably, Jesus doesn't use the past tense here. He doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was. He uses the present tense, literally saying what you read in the text here. Before Abraham was born, I am. And in calling himself the I am Jesus is saying here, I am Yahweh. When Yahweh or Jehovah God 
called Moses to go and bring God's people out of Egypt, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. And then God said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, God says, I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last, I am. And in Isaiah 50 or 43, verse 10, God says to Israel, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. This is Jehovah speaking and using this language. And Jesus is saying here, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, I am the I am. I am Yahweh God. You'll recall back in verse 24 of John 8, Jesus said literally, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then in verse 28 of John 8, we see Jesus again literally saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And now here in verse 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. This is one of the clearest and most definitive revelations of Jesus as Yahweh God that we find in the gospel accounts. And amazingly, guys, he chooses to provide this revelation of himself to these men who are treating him so horribly. How merciful of Jesus to reveal himself to such men who are so undeserving Speaking of these men, observe in verse 59 how these religious leaders respond to this staggering claim by Jesus. Do they fall at his feet and worship him? Do they bow before him in humble repentance and believe in him as the great I am? Nope. Verse 59, the text says, Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. The punishment in this day for the sin of blasphemy was stoning, and these men stand ready now to carry out that penalty right here on the spot. Jesus, the God-man, reveals himself to these men, and what do they want to do with him? They want to kill him. But they're not able to carry out their intentions, for John says in the second half of verse 59, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, the New American Standard translation says that Jesus hid himself, but the verb hid here could also be understood as a passive verb, which may indicate that Jesus uh, was hidden by his disciples or others who closed ranks around him in this moment, or that he was hidden by the Father in a way that his enemies could no longer see him or get to him. Either way, however you understand this, you must know that Jesus is not hiding himself or allowing himself to be hidden in this moment because he's scared of these men or because he's afraid of dying. He's allowing himself to be hidden, I think, as an act of mercy towards these men to give them more time to think about what they're going to do with him and to give them every opportunity to repent before they go doing something that they will come to later regret. Jesus is also hiding himself in this moment because his hour for dying has not yet come. It's about six months away. And when it does come, it won't come by stoning but by a cross. And when that moment arrives, Jesus will walk straight towards his fate and he will embrace his destiny. 
so that through his shed blood on the cross, all who believe in him could have atonement for their sins. So we'll stop here for today, but just as we're closing, what do we do with these incredible claims that Jesus makes in this passage today? Well, for starters, I think we should join C.S. Lewis in recognizing that Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was the most arrogant madman or liar who ever lived. There is no middle ground with Jesus. The words he spoke do not allow us any middle ground. If he wasn't the God that he claimed to be, then we cannot say he was just a good man who taught good moral principles. No, he was either who he said he was, or he was a madman, or a liar, the likes of which the world has never seen. But another way we should respond to the claims that Jesus makes in our passage today is we should believe every one of them. Every one of them. We should believe Jesus when he promises us that the person who keeps his word will never see death. Death will not be the last word for them. We should believe Jesus when he tells us that he knows the Father and that he keeps the Father's word. We should believe Jesus when he tells us that God the Father glorifies him. And we should join the Father in glorifying Jesus with our lives, living for his glory and no longer our own. And we should believe Jesus when he tells us that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and was glad in what he saw. And we should rejoice with Abraham in Jesus. And we should believe Jesus when he tells us that he is the eternally preexistent God, that he is the great I am. And we should not be afraid to tell the world of every one of these truths about Jesus, even if we know that what we declare to them about Christ may not be well received. The men in our passage today couldn't handle the truth that Christ was speaking to them about himself, but Jesus kept giving them more truth about himself, and we should do the same. And we should never tone down the truth about Jesus because we fear that what we say about him might not be well received by those that we are speaking to. If we compromise the truth about Christ, as many people are doing today who claim the name of Christ, if we compromise the truth about Christ to placate our world today, in the first place, our world will not be placated for long. They will simply move the goalpost and require even further compromise from us. Even worse, if we compromise and hide the truth about Christ in order to placate our world, we become liars just like the people we're trying to please. We should also observe in this passage the hatred and the malice experienced by Jesus from these men and realize that if we do stand for Christ and represent him and declare the truth about Christ to our world, there will be some who receive what we say. There will be others who dismiss what we say. And there will be some who despise us for what we say. And it's for this reason that Christians through the centuries have been persecuted and killed, and some are experiencing that even to this day in various parts of the world as they proclaim the truth about Christ to their communities. And it should not surprise us to observe today that the darker that our own culture grows, the more we see this hostility developing and clarifying itself against us. And we saw an explosion of that hostility on Monday of this past week. 
when a person walked into a Christian school and shot and killed several people? How should we respond to malice and hatred which is demonstrated against us for standing for Christ and representing him? Well, we should not wilt or back down, nor should we respond with our own hate toward those who hate us and hate our Savior. We should love those who are opposing us enough to continue to speak truth to them, just as Jesus does in our passage today. And we should know that even if the enemies of Christ were to succeed in killing us, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. Our enemies might be able to destroy our body for the moment, but they cannot kill our soul and they cannot separate us one whit from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And they can't even permanently separate us from our physical bodies because one day God's going to raise our bodies from the earth and restore them to us so that we can live in a glorified, embodied existence with Christ forever. So what is there to fear for us? I would recommend we all just go all in on Jesus, believing the full truth about him and keep declaring the truth about Jesus to others. And when it seems that people have heard all that they want to hear about Jesus from us, let's take that as our cue to just give them more Jesus through our words and through our actions. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Lord, I so love the image of Abraham standing in some distant day 4,000 years ago and looking into the future and seeing Christ's day and he's just getting excited and rejoicing and he's so glad though he what he sees is no doubt muddied and he doesn't see everything there is to see but what he does see he's rejoicing exceedingly 4,000 years ago and here we are 4,000 years later, living in the fulfillment of some of the very things that Abraham was rejoicing over. We, upon whom the end of the ages have come, and we look back and see that the Messiah came, and, and he lived this perfect life and did so many good works that the world itself could never contain, the books that could be written of all that he did when he was here. And then he gave himself in death upon a cross and he shed his blood so that those of us who believe in him could have all of our sins forgiven. And he was buried and on the third day, you raised him from the dead where he came forth from the tomb in resurrection power. And then shortly thereafter, you ascended him to your right hand where Jesus now reigns as the sovereign Lord and King of the universe. And there is much that lies ahead, but we know that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of the nations and nothing happens in this world and among the nations that he does not allow, but all that he allows is orchestrated to bring about the consummation of the ages when Christ himself will split the skies and return with us who are his saints following him and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And from there, there are many more glories to come into the eternal state. We have so much more clarity to see than Abraham had. 
And yet, how have we rejoiced? How glad have we been over these things? Yes, we live in a broken world and we experience brokenness ourselves. And yes, Lord, there is much to lament and to weep and to grieve over. But there is great reason in the midst of our tears to be glad and to rejoice exceedingly as we behold you, Lord Jesus. Train our eyes to see you and to see your day as we ought that we might join Abraham as fellow worshipers in rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of your glory and thrilled to be able to display the beauty of this Christ and to speak of him to others and call them to faith in him. And if there's any in this service this morning, Lord, that have never yet come to you, Lord Jesus, to believe in you, I pray that they will so see the beauty of your person, the glory of who you are as the great I am, that they will come running to you today and consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more hour apart from you. We ask all of these things, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,